Welcome to the VoxGig podcast. We talk to people in the developer community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. For more details, visit voxgig.com podcast. All right, let's get started. I am delighted to have Andrew Grill on as a guest. Andrew is a man who can see the future. No, literally, that is his job. Now, while we do spend a great deal of time talking about machine learning and AI and all the changes that are happening, the big takeaway for me from this interview is the idea of digital curiosity, which is to allocate some time to paying attention to the changes that are happening, because that lets you think about the future and start to understand it. And of course, that's what Andrew does, and it so happens that he's bringing out a book about that called Digitally Curious, which will be coming out later this year, so watch out for that. Digital curiosity is, of course, our bread and butter in the world of developer relations, so I think you will find Andrew particularly inspiring. Okay, let us get started. Andrew, welcome back to the Fireside with the Vox Gig podcast. It's wonderful to have you on again. Richard, it's been too long. Glad to be back on the show again. It has, it has indeed. I really wanted to have you back because... Uh, well, if you remember from, if our audience remembers from the previous time, you are a man who can predict the future. Um, and AI is that future now, it's happening. Uh, but uh, we were just chatting about this. Uh, I, as a technologist, have been aware of AI for years and what it can do, um, but never really took it that seriously. So what's happened? Why is, why is it suddenly taken off? It's a good question. So AI is not new. In fact, I was at a presentation a few weeks ago in the Middle East where the CTO of Amazon and I were on stage and he said, look, we've been using AI for 25 years. And if you unlock your phone, you're using AI. If you open a map application, you're using AI. If you look at a Netflix selection, you're using AI. I think what's happened is November 2022, ChatGPT came on the market. And again, they've been working on this for a while. But it removed the friction in accessing an AI platform. If we were talking a year ago and you were trying to explain AI to a corporate audience, it's quite hard because AI is a black box. You feed data in, you get data out. The fact that anyone, including my mum and dad in Adelaide, Australia, can type a query into a chat interface and get something back that makes sense is a revolution. Now, the way it works, I've done a lot of research and read a lot of papers on how it actually works. Chat GPT, what it's doing is predicting the next word in a sentence. Now, that's massively oversimplifying it, but the work behind the scenes to do that and to make it a frictionless interface that anyone can access means that now the media are talking about it. And so while Chat GPT isn't doing a lot of stuff that's useful, it's basically forming sentences sometimes that are meaningless and it sometimes hallucinates and goes in loops, but it's allowing people to understand, oh, that's the power of AI. And I'm now at an AI event at least twice a week, either in the audience or speaking at an event. And that's all anyone wants to hear about. But now it's become accessible. People can wrap their head around what it means for them personally and what it means for their business. So I think that's why we've now seen a watershed event where the genie's out of the bottle and now people can understand from a personal point of view what it means for them. Do you think this is uh, one of these, every 10 to 15 years in tech, Something something changes, right? There's some big change. It feels like this is the next one. 
Yeah. So I think rather than just AI, because AI has been around for a while and it's a very generalized term, but generative AI, be it text, be it code, be it songs, be it uh, images, the fact that it can now do these things at scale. So a number of things have happened. We've worked the maths out to do this very, very smartly. We've now got relatively inexpensive compute power and compute time from cloud servers. In fact, ironically, I hear companies like Microsoft are rationing access to their GPUs, their fast processes in the cloud, because they haven't got enough. Um, and so that's why NVIDIA's stock price or valuation went over a trillion dollars uh, during during the week because they, <laughs> they're needed to, to do this. So um, I've now forgotten your question, the train of thought. Well, so in technology, right, you have these waves of things that happen mm, oh, yeah. uh, every, every 10, 15 years. Uh, and people are always trying to predict what they're going to be, right? And it felt like it was crypto for a while. Although that was always a little iffy. Um, and it always felt like AI was kind of not quite there, not accessible. Um, but it does seem to have overcome that. It seems to have, AI seems to have won, right? Yeah. The way I look at it, and this is a very um, unscientific way, when you overhear conversations in coffee shops about technology that you've been looking at for a while, that's when it's become mainstream. This happened to me back in 2009. I was in a Starbucks in London, and someone was talking about Twitter, and I had joined Twitter probably that year or the year before. I was using it as one of the geeks in these sort of social media uh, fan clubs. And the fact that people in the street were talking about this technology, this platform, meant that it was going mainstream. The fact that I'm going to events now, I went to an event the other week and an economist spoke, and at the end of her talk, she then gave a live demonstration of ChatGPT. Um, my parents, my friends are all talking about it. So it's broken through. And so I think one of the... Uh, predictors of technology trends. And if you look at Gartner's hype cycle, we are in maximum hype around this. But it's hype that is actually being transferred into governments taking action. The fact that Rishi Shunak, the UK Prime Minister, is meeting Joe Biden today in the US, and the the the, the flagship BBC program last night, Newsnight, was covering an issue on AI and regulation. The UK government put out a fairly innovation-friendly AI paper a few months ago. They've now backflipped and said maybe we need more regulation. So if their tenants and their indicators of technology going mainstream and becoming uh, adopted and adapted into everyday life and everyday business, then I think generative AI, I think if we just say AI generally, it's been around for a while, it's a bit like, like saying you know, the internet is, has reached peak hype. Well, the internet enables it pretty much everything we do. But I think generative AI is that watershed moment. And we'll look back on November 2022 to say that's when, that's when this happened. Yeah, I mean, it feels as big as when the internet first came out itself. And then, you know, at first you had all these dinky little websites, and then suddenly it became you had to have a website and you had to be doing e-commerce. It, it feels that big, right? It does. So I think there have been a few waves in the, in the current industrial revolution. One was the internet, and we never quite knew how it would work. In fact, if you go back to Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the World Wide Web that allows us to index the web and, and find things, he, he spoke at an event a few months, oh, sorry, a few years ago that I saw him speak at uh, Parliament in, in London. And he said he's quite disappointed with how his invention has turned out. And I don't think anyone understood where it would go and then what would it empower. And then if you look back on mobile, I actually found a video the other day of me standing on George Street in Sydney on an old Nokia 8110 banana phone looking at a WAP page. You remember WAP? Yeah, oh, I had one of those, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I have a video of me actually stepping through the screens to get the weather forecast. And it probably took me about three or four minutes to do that because I had to click. I couldn't type. Yeah. And I thought back then, oh, this is a bit clunky. And then 3G came along. And I remember I was in the UK when 3G launched. And the use case then was it's all about video calling. And I don't know that I've ever made more than one or two video calls on, on a 3G network. <clears throat> What it was, was access to the internet. So you've got the internet, yeah. you've now got the internet without wires, wherever you are. And then, of course, the iPhone came along um, more than 10 years ago, and back then it didn't have an app store, it didn't have GPS, it had Edge, which was slow uh, slow uh, mobile internet. But then people adopted it, and the form factor, and even in the last week or so, Apple have launched their new virtual reality headset. And you know what? I've been such a skeptic on the metaverse and virtual reality for a while, mm. but Apple have nailed it. And you know what they've done? When you look at these ski-like goggles and you look at someone wearing them, you can see their eyes. That is a fundamental shift because you know there's a human behind there. You know that they can potentially see you and interact with you while also seeing things on the screen. The existing goggles that basically block you off from the world, first of all, they can make you very dizzy if you use them for too long. And second, it looks kind of weird. So I think Apple's nailed it. And all it is, is you can see the person's eyes. So there are fundamental things. And I think Apple's headsets, while they're very expensive, I think the form factor and what they've done is revolutionary. Generative AI from OpenAI and others, I think that's revolutionary. So I think we, we've reached a point where this is th this is something that will be here for a while and the person in the street can understand what it means, then you, you have people who want to print colon images and, and sell advertising, so they have the fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Uh, there was someone last night that I saw, apparently one of Rishi Sunak's advisors, although I didn't see his name. I don't know who he is, and I can't look him up. He said, well, they paraphrased. They said that he said, which I don't think he did from the clip, <laughs> that within two years, AI will have the power to kill people. I thought, oh, my goodness. In a way, you could argue that the internet has the power to kill people electricity has the power to kill people um it's just hysteria and it just it upsets me that people sort of go so far to find all the negative things about technology because what i do is i try and look for the impacts of technology in business and society do you use uh, science fiction to help your thinking um no i use reality <laughs> well having said that i look back to some of my uh, my contemporary futurists so arthur c clark uh, who famously co-wrote Space Odyssey 2001 with Stanley Kubrick. There's a whole story behind that movie, which is fascinating as well. In the 50s, he predicted that satellites one day would orbit the Earth to allow us to communicate. Yeah. In yeah. 1974, he was interviewed by an Australian journalist, and the journalist said, look, my son standing next to me will be uh, my age in 2001. What will life be like then? And in 1974... Arthur C. Clarke predicted the internet, and you can go back to the video and watch, it's about four minutes long. He said, you know, we won't have to uh, live in cities, we'll be able to work wherever we are, we'll have a terminal that we can take with us. I don't think that's science fiction. I think that's science uh, with a bit of reality on it. But um, I'm not a huge sci-fi fan, if I'm honest. I like living in the present and the near future. Uh, yeah, I, so I want to, this issue of, is AI going to kill us, right? Are we going to face Terminators and what happens next and does it make itself ever better and, and we're all lost in this singularity thing um I, I just find it interesting to compare two um radically different sci-fi visions of the future of ai and uh, i'd like to get your thoughts on them um you're familiar with frank herbert's dune series and the films mm. um, so the concept there is that uh ai turned out to be 
uh, something that was used to enable fascism and oppression. So it was there was a jihad effectively against AI, and all thinking machines were banned. Uh, and then you can compare that with the Scottish writer Ian, Ian M. Banks, right, who had a series of novels called the Culture Series, where uh, we are effectively pets. Right, the AI has become four-dimensional, godlike minds, and they've created a post-scarcity society. Um, so, I mean, to, you know, to <laughs> to put it bluntly, where do you think we end up? Is it ultimately AI gets used for evil, and we have to reject it completely, or do we bow down to our new robot overlords because they know how to run human society better than we do? Well, here's the thing, and I'm going to present this slide in about two hours to, to a group in London, that, that the dirty little secret is that AI is not intelligent. If I go back to the chat GPT explanation that it basically predicts the next word in a sentence, it doesn't know what that sentence means. It doesn't know what you're asking. It just mathematically worked out. So, for example, if I typed in the first man to land on the moon was high probability, the next two words are Neil Armstrong, because it's seen that somewhere before right. and it's a high probability. And and that's a very, again, simple example. But AI is programmed by machine, but take two. AI is actually programmed and trained by humans. So we actually have some input into this. Now, if we program and it becomes sentient and it goes off and, and does all that, we have some way to look at that. I think why the government is concerned is that it's going to be so powerful in simulating intelligence that it could do things that could cause harm. And that comes as, brings us the whole discussion of ethical use of AI. And regulation, I mean, ethics and AI is a huge topic, but one of the things you need to be aware of is that you need to have some control over your models that you're generating. So you need to have what's called explainability. Now, if an AI model makes a bad decision on a song title on Spotify, that's a bit annoying because yeah. I don't like that sort of music. If AI makes a bad decision about you being able to stay in the country and having to leave because of an immigration issue, that's bad and that's life-threatening. But can you explain why that decision was made? And if you can't, then that's where regulation steps in. You need to have some way of understanding explainability, in input in, provided input out. And once you've set an AI model to work, you have to have observability. You have to actually say, can you look at the decisions it's making? Is it making bad decisions on a regular basis? Have we programmed it incorrectly? Have the humans programmed it incorrectly? So I think we are a long way away from the machines taking over because humans have the input. And if we have explainability and observability built in, we can see them going bad and we can hopefully switch them off. But all machines will kill. Um, if I use a knife in the wrong way, I can chop my finger off or, or, or heaven forbid, um, harm someone. If I jump in a motor vehicle and I drive it the wrong way, I could hit someone. Uh, so, you know, machines can hurt us, but there are safeguards put in place and why they have brakes in a car. That's why, you know, you put a knife in a knife holder. So I think the hysteria around that, that, that you know, they'll take over, we have some input to that. And part of it is smart training, smart programming, ethical programming. And part of that is good corporate citizenship. I don't want to create bad decisions. And part of it is regulation. Not saying you can't do this, but you need to be able to explain it 
And there are existing laws. There are laws around discrimination. There are laws around all sorts of things that people kind of ignore because it's an AI black box. Oh, the AI will take COVID. No, no, no. If you deny someone a job because of their political persuasion or colour or or gender, and that's an input to a system and you can prove that, then that's breaking the law. So the laws are already there. So I'm not a, a, um, a supporter of the argument that the AI will take over because we actually have a role in where it goes. And I think humans generally don't want bad things to happen to good people. Yeah, yeah. And it is a nuanced position, Andrew, but I, you could you could draw an analogy with cars, right? We accept all the trade-offs of having large, uh, dangerous, fast-moving objects in our society. Um, and we control them mostly with conventions and, and law. I, I do feel technologists tend to ignore the power of the law <laughs> uh, in solving problems and try to solve problems with code mostly. Um, so that, that is a nuanced position, but um, certainly a bit calmer than some of the things we've been hearing. Um, mm. the, the issue for business at the moment is, okay, well, you know, let, let's put that hysteria to one side, right? Thank you. It has to be discussed. <laughs> we have to, you know, we, we have to, we have to put it in its box, right? But to get down to brass tacks and practical stuff, uh, I'm now running a business, and uh, I know that there is this powerful new technology. Which, okay, it's a little ropey and new. Uh, there's a lot of people out there probably selling snake oil. There's a lot of very expensive consultants, um, but I know my competitors are doing things. So. Yeah, two questions. At a general level, uh, how does a business deal with these type of technology inflection points where it is now clear that there is definitely a big change? And then in this moment, how do you deal with machine learning and the, the, the changes to productivity that it can, that it can bring? One, the first point, uh, I'm with you that uh, everything's changing. Someone who was a Bitcoin expert then became a metaverse expert and now they're an AI expert and they're all over LinkedIn and they're very obvious. And, mm. um, you know, if I see another, here are the top five prompts you need to, oh, uh, or yeah. secret hacks for ChatGPT. <laughs> people have been doing that for ages. And when the internet came out, people tried to, to do that and Bitcoin and, and metaverse and now AI. Uh, and eventually ChatGPT won't be free and it will cost you to use it. And so people have to be a little bit more um, uh, conservative with it. But on the second point, I really, someone asked me the other day, I was doing a, a talk for a bunch of chief financial officers and we were talking about the future ready office of the CFO and what the CFO's office had to do. And one question I was asked is, you know, what have you seen amongst all your clients? And I said, they, they just are overwhelmed. All these new technologies coming at them. They've got ESG reporting requirements. They've got um, new regulations. They haven't got time to explore these new toys. And in fact, I did a uh, a session a few few weeks ago for a, a, a UK PLC. There were 16 of their top leaders that came together. And the last time they came together, they were asked, what would you like to talk about next time we're together? And every one of them said AI. So I did an AI um, masterclass, mm. spent a couple of hours on the theory uh, of what it all meant. And then I spent the rest of the day uh, in a workshop environment, working out what that company could do with AI, not in 10 years, but next week, next month. And we came out with three minimal viable products or prototypes that they could actually launch today. 
And actually, before the event, I got them to do some pre-work. I gave them some slides on some terminology. So when we were talking about AI, AI and ML, they knew what we were talking about. I also got them to try ChatGPT. I said, I want you to sign up for an account. I want you to log in and play with it. I want you to ask it a couple of questions, something about your work and something about your personal life. And one of the participants, it was fascinating, before we started, I said, you know, what, what did you ask it? She said, well, I got to write a poem about my dog. And it actually did rather a lovely poem that used my dog's name and everything else. I said, how long would that normally take you to do if you were doing it from scratch? Oh, probably best part of a day. And it did it in seconds. My point here is you've got to actually allow people to be what I call digitally curious. Executives are busy. As I said, they have everything thrown at them. So how do you allow them to play with this technology in a way where they're not being overwhelmed? So if I said today, right, go and write some code to turn a light bulb on and off in JavaScript, even I couldn't do that. So why would you ask someone to do something that's beyond beyond what they are capable of doing or, or, or uh, educated to do? But with this chat GPT interface, you can literally chat to it like, like you talk to a chatbot. So I think part of it is how do we allow people the time to think, the time to be digitally curious when everything else is going on? And what I try and instill in all of my audience is allowing you the time to do that. Because if you don't understand what generative AI can and can't do, then someone else who does will be more advanced than you and might get might get your job. So I think to answer your question in a roundabout way, trying to educate people that this technology is not scary, but when they are personally involved, when they try it, they then can understand what it means for them. And on... On a practical matter, right? Let's talk about these MVPs. We don't have to talk about the details of them, but uh, are these things that the internal uh, staff in those companies, the IT department, is now able to do themselves because of ChatGPT, or to actually leverage it fully? Do do you need to bring in experts? They can do it today. They have a partner. This particular company has a partnership with Microsoft, and Microsoft actually have a sandbox, and they they allow you to do things. And in fact, I went to an event last night where uh, there's a sort of internal sort of chat GPT type interface for scanning documents. So there are things off the shelf. So you don't have to go and build it. I think what you need to understand is the business and the business rules and and what the business objectives are. There are lots of off-the-shelf tools you can use to do that. And again, an MVP is not a fully finished product. It's could it work? And to describe in in basic terms what they're looking for, this particular company runs um, hardware stores. And the issue they've got is that during the week, they have very uh, experienced people. And during the weekend, they have casual staff. And so the skills transfer between the experienced people and the casual staff is something that is a bit of bit of a friction point because they, are, they, they don't know all the things that the experienced staff do. So what mm. about a virtual assistant where either the, 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 first of all, the experienced staff train it to know all about, you know, what piece of wood do you need for this or what's the best nail for this? And so the casual worker uses a chat interface while the customer's in front of them and the customer goes, wow, that's great advice, just as if one of the most experienced people had served me. So that's a really simple thing. And and that came out of, you know, what are, what are the big friction points in our business and how can we solve them? And that is something that could be solved relatively easily using off-the-shelf products today. And then you then go, well, okay, let's build this in properly and plumb it into the whole system. But to do a little prototype, quick and dirty, quite easy, and there are a lot of off-the-shelf tools today. Okay. You have given... Um... You've given us a little pathway, and especially this, I like this idea of just giving yourself a little bit of time to be digitally curious. Um, I, I have to admit that that has paid off for me over the years. I 
I'm still feeling guilty about procrastinating now when I'm reading about new tech. Um, but we would be remiss, Andrew, if we didn't uh, talk about your new book, which is coming out uh, very soon, I believe. It is, and you'll never guess what the title's called, Digitally Curious. There you go. <laughs> I have been fortunate that over the last four or five years, I've interviewed some of the world's leading minds on technology. I've got about 90 interviews in the can. And so the challenge I've got now, I've transcribed them all using AI. Of course, I use otter.ai. I'm not affiliated with them, but it's a great product. To transcribe all the interviews, I've got probably between half a million and a million words to play with. And my publisher wants 60,000 words. And my hesitation in writing a book a few years ago was I've got to create content from scratch. I've got the other problem now. I've got the content. I now need to prune it down into something that people could read. So the sort of person I hope that would pick up the Digitally Curious book at an airport or a bookshop is, well, I keep hearing about AI. I keep hearing about the metaverse. I keep hearing all these technologies. What does it mean? And what do I need to do to stay ahead? And because I call myself the actionable futurist and what the publisher liked about the proposal was that every chapter We'll have five things you can do today. So in the AI chapter, here are five things you can do today, tomorrow, next week to become more digitally curious, to become more familiar with the technology. And I've tested the idea on friends and family and, and business associates. I said, yeah, I'd, I'd buy that. Uh, and the, the problem I've got, though, in fact, the, the chapter on AI that I started writing was well before ChatGPT was launched. And then ChatGPT 3.5 was there. And now it's ChatGPT 4. By the time the book is published on the shelves, ChatGPT 5 or 6 may be out. So the challenge I've got is how do I describe this in fairly general terms that don't rely on a specific technology being available in front of them? I have um, I have something that, that might uh, make that less of a concern. Just from a pure science tech perspective, um, if you think about the difference between iPhone 1 and 2 versus 13 and 14, right? Um, Chat GPT-5, yes, it will be better, but... The gap between three and four is is already going to be bigger, right? For ChatGPT five, the difference between four and five won't be as big. Yeah, and that's why I'm talking in, in general terms that uh, it won't be exactly what it can do, but it's it's more about you know how do you remain curious? Uh, and I think probably when the book's out, some people still may not have used it. Not everyone's going to be using ChatGPT. In fact, what's interesting, I'll do a show of hands today in the audience. I'm going to ask people who have used ChatGPT. I'll then say, keep your hand up if you're using it in your daily work. And I think most of the hands will go down because people have tried it. It's a bit of a toy. But how do you actually plumb that into your daily workflow? I, I think people are still wondering how they do that yet. That is interesting. I use it on an almost daily basis. Um, but then again, it's good. Have, have you paid for the, the version four, the, the chat GPT plus? Have you paid for the $20 yes, yeah, no, I pay version? For it. I pay for it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there you go. You've, you've invested. You see that it's worth at least $20 a month. So oh. that's interesting. So your hand would stay up because you're using it. But I think a lot of people are inquisitive. They're curious. But then what do I, what do, I do with this? And that's where I think you need to remain digitally curious. Awesome. Okay. I think uh, we have just about run out of time. Thank you so much for coming on again, Andrew. It was great to talk to you. Um, we should do this again in 15 years when there's another big change in tech. Maybe we'll be I think we should do this something. in one year to see whether what we've talked about has happened and whether we're closer to the overlords taking over. It's uh, I'm happy to be kept honest, but I don't think we're going to be killed by robots anytime soon. No, no. I think I think we're okay there. Looking forward to the book coming out. Um, definitely going to definitely gonna take a look at that one. Thank you so much. Thanks, Richard. Always good to talk to you. Awesome. Brilliant, brilliant.
You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on our podcast page at voxgig.com podcast. Subscribe for weekly editions where we talk to the people who make the developer community work. For even more, read our newsletter. You can subscribe at voxgig.com newsletter or follow our Twitter at voxgig. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.